Hi, everyone. Welcome to White Coats of the Roundtable, a healthcare podcast focused on career development, burnout prevention, and non-clinical careers. My name is Mike Gazbeck, and I'm joined, as always, by John McDonald. What's up? Good morning, John. Hey, I actually have my coffee. I didn't do the Huberman thing today. Ah, yeah. See, welcome to the dark side. Coffee is necessary, especially for our morning recording sessions. So I'm glad you've you've found some rationality in your life. Uh, it's very few and far between for those. So you got to find it where you can get it. Yeah, that's true. Well, let's get right into it because our producer keeps complaining that we shouldn't cross talk in the beginning because people are here to listen to professional development, not us just riffing. So today's going to be an off script. And for those of you that may be new to the show, off script is where we go in unedited. The whole idea is to to replicate John and I hanging out in our living rooms, drinking coffee, just talking about healthcare's big picture items. So today I've got a really interesting idea, John. And once again, we're, we're going to do this in a manner where we're going to be hearing each other's ideas for the first time. So no prep going into this. So the listeners get our, our organic reactions. But Throughout the podcast, and certainly in the past year and a half, we've talked a lot about non-clinical careers. We've talked about atypical or non-traditional career paths. And I think a big part of that is entrepreneurship. And I was inspired, actually, with our recent episode with Jamie, where she talked about taking a a really radical non-traditional path of creating online courses and essentially becoming an educator, but dare I say, almost social media influencer for pharmacy. And that made me realize that we talk a lot about MSL, we talk about medical writing in all of these maybe more traditional, non-traditional careers. But I'd love to today just sit and kind of spitball about entrepreneurial ideas. So here's my proposal to you. What we do today is you and I just go back and forth with some, like, if I were to start a business, here's what I would do. And they can be realistic. They can be pie in the sky. They can be, if I were to ever become a billionaire, here's the business idea that I think would get me there. Mm. So it doesn't necessarily have to be tied to any realistic metrics of achievement or accomplishment, but more of almost having a brainstorming session. Because the reason I want to do this is maybe to encourage listeners or stimulate listeners to also think this way. Because I think if you get settled into a mindset of, I'm going to work my nine to five, I'm going to go home and I'm not going to be creative. I'm not going to find an outlet. That's fine because thankfully we work in healthcare fields that usually compensate at a fairly good clip. But at the same time, I don't know about you, but when I was going to PA school, one of our professors put it perfectly. A physician said, you don't go into medicine to get wealthy. It's very difficult to get rich in medicine. And that's kind of a funny thing because we're all very well compensated, but at the same time, you know, if, if we wanted to all become multimillionaires, the easier path probably would have been to get a degree in finance and go work on mm-hmm. Wall Street and become a hedge fund trader or whatever. So healthcare compensates well and probably assures that you're going to have a comfortable life, but at the same time is not the path to becoming a billionaire or even to becoming, you know, a net worth of seven figures. So let's talk today about maybe what those entrepreneurial kind of pie in the sky, big picture ideas might be. I'll turn Mm -hmm. it over to you to get your thoughts. And then because I'm springing this on you, I can go first, but I'd love to get your reflections on that before we dive into this topic. Yeah. I think something you just said about getting into healthcare, um, we really shouldn't do it to be wealthy. I, I don't know about your class, but I can tell you my class and other people I've experienced, 
that seems to be one of the topic of conversations when you talk to interns, even they're just like, Oh yeah, I'm, once I'm out, I'm making seven, you know, six figures, possibly seven in the future, but I'm going to make six figures right off the bat. And although it does sound great and we've talked at end about how much school costs. And so it's not really six figures until well into your career. I think the difficulty with people in healthcare is that we're so highly specialized and we've been reviewing the same information over and over again that sometimes our ideas are stuck in this niche of of healthcare or even your specific practice or trade. And so our ideas sometimes just surround what makes sense to me, what would make me happier with my work, what would make it easier for my com- my compadres and what can make me more money in this line of work. So whereas somebody going in for like finance or with an MBA, they're thinking generally like any, their, their knowledge is applicable um, across a wide latitude. So that's why I think it, it, this is, we're up to the task of, of course, but it's not gonna, I'm just curious to see what you're going to say. Really, that's, that's what I'm coming down to. So here, I'll add another caveat then. So it does not have to be an entrepreneurial idea that is only limited to healthcare. So certainly mine are. Oh. So yeah, it can be anything. If you want to start a, a banana stand, that's fine. There's always money in There's the banana always stand. always money in the banana stand. But the reason I'm going to go with healthcare is actually it ties to our episode recently with Caleb and certainly our discussions even going a year back with Frank with financial advisement. I uh, went to my financial guy maybe last year or the year before, and we had a good amount of money kind of socked away through COVID. We thankfully were able to save. And I said, you know what, should we, should I maybe look at buying some rental properties? He goes, do you want to be a landlord? Do you want to be fixing toilets at two in the morning? I said, no, not really. I said, I don't think that's a good use of my time. He said, then don't buy rental properties. (laughs) And it was the most straightforward, simple advice, but it was that light bulb moment And he said, you know, if you're going to invest, if you're going to look to build wealth, stick with what you know. Don't buy rental properties if you're not a real estate expert. Rather, stick with healthcare and do things where you may have that competitive edge because of your knowledge base. So when I'm thinking about the entrepreneurial stuff today, my ideas are all kind of healthcare focused because I'm trying to think exactly what you said of ways that we can reduce friction in our day-to-day jobs, areas within our healthcare space that are inefficient that maybe are problems that don't yet have a solution because that's where I think we can truly have great success. Now, certainly I know of healthcare professionals that are multimillionaires because they took their money from healthcare and then went and bought duplexes and now manage a dozen properties that cash flow more than their day job. So it's not to say that that's not a reasonable path, but I like to think about this in the sense that my skill set or my expertise is within healthcare. So that's if I'm going to be entrepreneurial, that's the space I want to be in. So all right, let's yeah, let's let's dive into it. Okay, sounds good. Yeah, now it tickled my brain here. Okay, sounds good. So my first idea is within the healthcare space. Big shocker, but my idea with it is that. I'm in psychiatry and I would love to see a like a concierge private practice where instead of fee for service, where every time the patient comes in, they pay a copay and then, you know, I get compensated per visit. I would rather see a situation where you combine direct care, whereas usually it's you pay an annual fee or a monthly fee and then you get unlimited care 
<clears throat> combine that concept with directly contracting with employers. But the idea behind it is to almost make an integrative wellness center. Mm-hmm. So I you know, would love to form a company and then approach large employers that, you know, the GM plant that, that employs 2000 people and say, Hey, for X number of dollars per employee, I will provide psychiatric care, but we will also have an onsite gym. We will have, you know, yoga or, or wellness type of things. There will also be access to an app that focuses on sleep tracking, that focuses on, you know, the other aspects of wellness. But the idea behind it as a clinician, I love the idea of having assured income, just having a contracted rate. This is mm-hmm. the number of souls that you're responsible for. And then instead of having to focus on, okay, I need to see 28 visits per day because that's the number I need to meet my productivity goals, rather be I am in the business of trying to prevent patients from needing a visit. You know, if I can just text them and say, hey, last week I saw you and we talked about getting eight hours of sleep every night. How's it been going the past seven days? Mm -hmm. And having the patient text back and say, I'm sleeping great. I feel better already. I don't need a copay for that because we're getting that annual retainer essentially. So you're seeing direct care take off in primary care. And I think that's a really good model. You're not seeing it catch hold nearly as much in mental health. And I think in part, because sadly, a lot of people that have mental health struggles are also lower on the socioeconomic scale and may not be able to afford a $2,000 retainer to have this type of care. But I love the idea of moving to that concierge or direct pay model simply because it moves us away from fee for service and then also allows us to maybe have a greater emphasis on wellness, healthy lifestyle, because all of that in mental health is so important. So that's my idea. I think the thing that holds me back from it is, A, I love what I do in my day job. So Mm -hmm. I have enough enjoyment in my day job that right now I'm not looking to make any big drastic changes in what I do clinically. Uh, B, I think it is that in Buffalo, I may be not as confident that I would be able to find enough people that would sign on to equal out what I'm, you know, currently making. So I think about it sometimes if I could get 200 people that would pay me $2,000 a year to manage their site care, I currently manage 15 to 1600 patients. So I would be able to Mm -hmm. cut my patient load by 90%, still make the same income. And I hope provide a higher level of care because we would be able to have longer, more wellness focused visits instead of just here's a med, let's see you next month and see how it's going. So, well, I I just want to, but is it okay if I, please do the whole idea is to to get feedback on these ideas and talk through them. It's, it's interesting that you brought this up. Uh, Now that we're doing a lot of shots for pharmacy because of COVID flu, RSV, where, I mean, dare say all the other ones are doing hepatitis now. Um, yeah, man, and like it's just it's wild. So I'm having to update people's profiles for their doctor who we're going to send this to, and I always ask, you know, is this your current doctor still? And uh, I can't tell you how many doctors have retired in the last two years. Uh, so many <laughs> patients with new care, and they're happy with their doctors for the most part, but I, I just can't believe how many people have retired mm-hmm. since COVID. And this one doctor. Um, everybody's really upset that they lost him. I thought he retired, but he went to a concierge service and, um, most of the older people were saying, I don't know who would want to do that. You know, 
I wouldn't blah, blah, blah. But the younger the patients got, the more they're like, you know, you know, I get it. Cause you know, we all, we, we pay monthly fees for everything. So it kind of works with how we view money now. Yeah, it really does. So there is, I think that there is a, um, the dream is realizable. I, th- I just think it, I think you're a little early for it or in the wrong location. If you were to bring this up in Silicon Valley, right. I think that yep. you easily could do this. I agree. Uh, I don't, I think you could find a backer. I could, I could find somebody who really cares about their employee wellness and want the optics mm-hmm. of really trying to help their employees. out. I think the Rust Belt is economically limiting, but here's, here's mm-hmm. what I envision. Imagine a psychiatry practice that is also attached to a gym or an exercise facility. Mm-hmm. And then maybe also has in the waiting room of the psychiatry practice, there's a coffee station, there's tea, there's snacks, there's maybe a lounge. As we talked about mm-hmm. having third places, I think the idea is if you're going to promote wellness and if you're going to be contracting with employers, a large employer, the hope is that this is a place that is welcoming, that allows lots of, of um, you know, interaction and ability to come in. Oh, massages. <clears throat> sure. Can you can you put that in there? Yeah, I'll put a massage in just for you. But yeah, you know, have the home gym, have yoga classes, essentially combine a fitness center, which many employers have with maybe nutrition, which once again, many employers have, but then add on that extra layer of having psychotherapy, having medications if necessary. I think we do in, in, in the employer world, we do a really good job recognizing that employee wellness is necessary. And I think a lot of the programs that are out there are very well intentioned, but then at the same time, don't necessarily address the unmet need. And I think in part, one of the big needs is making sure that these folks have access to psychiatric care if it does reach a point where they need to have medications. But the hope obviously is to prevent or reduce the risk of getting to that. And I think if you do it in a manner where it's directly contracted, you can have a lot of interaction. You can have a really welcoming space with a big emphasis on wellness. Maybe you get there. So down yeah. the road, I, I don't know. I, I love the idea. So I actually, in my hometown, there's a physical therapy um, clinic right now that's owned by my my former soccer coach, and it is a medically oriented gym. So they've got mm. a primary care office. They've got a physical therapist and then a whole fitness facility all in one building. And I love, I love the concept of it. I love it for primary care, the whole idea of integrated health. And I think you're seeing it once again in primary care and it's yet to take hold in psych, but I think mental health, that's really the next step is really integrating that wellness component into what we're doing with medications or biologic. Yeah. I think it would shorten the gap to, from the, the white collar to the blue collar, um, cause you're seeing the medical staff more consistently, especially if you're going to start going to the gym more often. So it levels the playing field. It makes people a little bit more comfortable, almost like the old country docks where everybody knew each other. And it wasn't, there's some that you had, you were eating with at the diner earlier that day. You're seeing the same guy. And um, before we move on to the next one, because I don't want to hang on one too long. When you first started explaining this, the only thing that was going through my mind is this reminds me of Star Trek. Like the onboard medical doctor, you have the gym, you have like... And he takes care of everybody. He knows everybody. They come to see him for not only the, the medical problem, physical problems, but even just to talk through some stuff. Yep. It's like it brings that community back. And we were talking about community mm-hmm. just mm-hmm. the other day. Yeah. I think it, I think it's great. Absolutely. I think that's a wonderful idea. And I think that um, 
I don't think it's a pipe dream though. This, I believe that we will be going in that that direction. I think so. I think uh, the future is bright for that type of integrated care model. So it'll be interesting to see how that plays out. But if I ever leave my day job, I, I probably would move to some mm-hmm. model like that. I think I make it, I'm diversified enough in my income with consulting that I could start a private practice and mm-hmm. really allow it to grow slowly, even if there's a very small number of patients that would be willing to buy into yeah. that model. But I do love the idea of maybe doing something disruptive and innovative. But so now go ahead. I was going to say now I could go to something that is a little bit more aligned. Yeah, your turn. Go ahead. All right. So if it, if you want it more aligned, I can just carry on or I can go completely opposite. I'll, dealer's choice. I'll let you decide. Okay. So I'll go along with what you're talking about. And this is something I, I, I've thought about for quite a while. And it's mostly because when I work with geriatric patients, I can see the information just going through one ear out the other. Um, so I wanted to find a way to which I didn't have to see this person again and then explain the same thing again five times in five different meetings, but rather have an advocate available to to go through what we've already discussed or to keep them in line with what our plan was. So we don't have the opportunities all the time to have family members there. Um, some people have that latitude. Uh, most families don't because most are dual income. So I thought it'd be a great idea to have a concierge on the phone through an application or an AI service available so that anytime a geriatric patient comes in, they have the application on their phone, they start it and it takes in all the information that the doctor's discussing. It links to their medical chart so that we can see what previous blood draws were, um, past medical history, everything on the patient's charts that's relevant, you know, do its own data mining while the doctor's talking and allows the AI to ask questions to the physician based on what the family's concerns were, maybe things that were discussed at home, maybe things that were longitudinally followed. And even if it's not live re- responses, at least it can take the transcript, record it, and formulate a whole uh, medical summary. Because let's be honest, our medical summaries in our industry are mm-hmm. terrible. Mm-hmm. Nobody understands them. I can't tell you how many times people have come to my pharmacy with a bunch of papers in their hand, just shuffling them. Be like, hey, I don't know. Can you read? So I've looked at more more patient summaries than I can shake a stick at. But we don't have, probably have to do that because a lot mm-hmm. of stuff's not relevant to them. And they don't understand it. So if we had themes set up for this application, you could put in what the patient understands, what they need to know. And based on their level of knowledge, say if if we're talking about continuing medication, maybe they have a high level understanding. So you can go a little bit more in depth on what that means. But maybe we're talking about um, their their last blood draw and their CHEM 7, CHEM 8. Well, they might need it very simplified on there what we're talking about. It'll transcribe it to that immediately. And we don't waste paper. It's all on application. I love it. I I think, you know, AI is certainly marching quite quickly to that. And I'm excited because you see a lot of AI supported charting companies that are springing up and 50% Mm -hmm. of our jobs, I'm sure pharmacy is similar, is paperwork. So Mm -hmm. 
as we're talking about this immense shortage of healthcare providers in the US, one of the best things that we can do is leverage our existing workforce to be more efficient. And I think we're getting there. Where if I'm spending half of the time I currently spend doing charting, that might be three or four more patient visits. In turn, that's more revenue for me. So that's a benefit for me. It's a benefit for patient access. And it's also better for burnout too, because one of the leading causes of burnout is charting and admin work. So I love that idea. But the part about that that's so fascinating to me that I didn't even think of is the idea of having AI crawling charts to data mine. It's so brilliant because Amazon does this. So Amazon actually just recently in the news, I don't know if you caught it, but um, I'm kind of obsessed with big tech stuff like that. Amazon, there was recently a report report that they had. It was like Project Trojan Horse or something like that, Mm. where they would crawl all the retail prices of their competitors. And then they actually would increase the price of their item on Amazon. And then they would crawl all the other ones to monitor to see if those prices increase because they're such a big fish, they basically have price setting ability (laughs) where if they raise their price, everyone Mm -hmm. else raises as well because Amazon sets the retail online market. So the idea of having, you know, AI or these algorithms that can mine and just crawl these charts and and provide information is not unfeasible. The technology is probably there. It's just implementing it in healthcare. I just, I can't even imagine how nice life would be if I'm visiting or seeing a patient and I can just turn to my computer and say, you know, Jarvis, when's the last blood work? And instead of having to scroll through the chart to find it, it says, oh, the patient last received blood work on this date. And I can say, what were the results? And it gives me the results. Or I can say, when was the last MRI? When was the last mini mental status exam? All of these things that are in the chart and are accessible to us. And I consider that a blessing because, you know, 20 years ago, paper charts, you didn't know what they did three years ago. You were maybe looking at one or two visits and figuring out what to do next. So the amount of data and information we have available because of EMR is great. And I do believe that Mm -hmm. improves outcomes, but it's still hard to dig through and find it. So the idea of having that just readily accessible on demand is incredible. The, the the amazing thing about it, and I think the most realizable uh, fact here is that it's a closed system, these, these EMR systems. So you wouldn't necessarily need to have access to the, I would say the internet, the web to find out uh, answers, uh, I said general answers across the web. It really is just all self-contained. So if you have preset conditions, like you said, blood work, It'll know exactly what to do. You can train an AI. I think you could train an AI very quickly on this. Um, But I I just love the interconnectivity. I love the simplicity of it. I love the idea of lack of paper. Um, And it just streamlines our services and makes everybody's life easier. And I'm going to add one more thing to this. I would have loved to, this is a selfish because I'm I'm a pharmacist. We don't have access to patient charts. I would love... Um, you know how when you're with somebody at their house and they've got Apple and they can share their password to their Wi-Fi to you directly? Well, why don't they allow that for pharmacists where we are constantly having to call your offices, Mike, and say, oh, we have to correct this. Somebody wrote this wrong. What did you mean by this? 
why don't just give us access to every one of the charts? The patient allows access, you know, pings it to us. Like, yeah, you can have access right now. I look through, it's like, oh, this is what they meant. They just put it in wrong. I can change it. I don't have to talk to you guys. Yeah, I agree. I I think, unfortunately, we we completely dropped the ball in the early 2000s when EMR was just coming online by not making them interoperable. So Mm -hmm. that is, you know, in hindsight, of course, that was a big misstep because there was an opportunity from a regulatory perspective to make sure that they all were able to communicate with each other and we just missed out. But I well, here's the rise of AI to help all this. Yeah, so, so we're going to solve the problem now, twenty something years later. But I love the idea. I think uh, that's one of those ones as we're talking about feasibility. It's highly feasible, but probably inaccessible to you simply because that's one where you're going to have to have a very high understanding of uh, mm-hmm. AI, uh, but also have an incredible degree of funding to get there. So while it's, so listener, while it's one that's very in- achievable, it's also one that maybe is not achievable for you and I in our basements. So, well, if you're listening out there and you hear this and you are an AI expert, data miner, and applications engineer, um, hit your boy up. Let's do this. I love it. All right. So I'll go next. So I'm kind of, I'm considering what direction to go with this. So I think what I'm going to do is I'm going to stick with tech because I think, as you can see here, tech is really the area where a lot of disruption is happening in healthcare. And that's exciting because... I'm a big believer that healthcare and education are, you know, the two industries in our economy that are the most ripe for disruption disruption because they're the most legacy. They're they're kind of the ones that are both entrenched in the whole, well, that's the way it's always been done mindset. And that means that there's a lot of opportunity to be really disruptive and have a lot of creative destruction. So to kind of go in line with what you're saying, I'm really excited because I think there's an immense opportunity once again within the mental health space to integrate wearable technology and apps and smartphones within mental health care. And what I mean by that is my wife has an Apple watch and I, I don't, I'm a Swiss watch guy. I, I like the mechanics. I like the engineering. I don't think I'll ever move off of an old fashioned mechanical watch, but with an Apple watch, her heart rate is tracked. Her sleep patterns are tracked. Her exercise, her steps are tracked. There's so much opportunity there to kind of get a snapshot of a person's mental health. If a person is having very frequent periods of tachycardia, that might be a stand-in for anxiety. If the patient is having really poor, restless sleep, and they're presenting to me complaining of depression, the sleep may be in, you know, influencing that. There's research that shows that poor sleep is often an early indicator of a pending relapse of depression. Exercise is one of the the best modifiable risk modifiable risk factors for mental health. There there was a a claims based data study of 1.2 million people that found that regular exercise reduces mental health symptoms by 40. percent So these things all matter, and we see lots of digital health technology or mood tracking apps, and I think those are good, but we have yet to get to the point where I think they're fully integrated in the patient's mental health care. We're very close and there's a lot of people that are probably working on it. So it's not like this is a a new novel idea no one's thinking of, but I eventually want to see an app that I can use as a clinician with my patient. And, you know, perhaps this is something that is reimbursed by insurance, or maybe this is something that the patient actually just pays for and it's part of their care, but an app that allows measurement-based care 
So mood tracking, you know, every day, hey, how are you feeling? And maybe it's just a quick Likert scale, you know, one through 10, I feel good, I feel bad. Do you have any symptoms of suicidality? Do you feel depressed? Whatever, you add a couple screener questions that just give a kind of a pulse check of where mood is at. But then you also have all that wearable technology data. You can see how the patient's sleeping. You can see if they're exercising. You could somehow implement some sort of dietary monitoring as well whether it be them logging their food, or maybe you eventually get to a point where the apps can do it without any human input. But I'm a big believer from a wellness standpoint, the thing that I always talk to my patients about is sleep, diet, social connection, and exercise. Those are kind of my four big ones that I always push with my patients. And technology is getting to the point where those can be tracked just by your Apple Watch or your smartphone. And if we get to the point where we can integrate that tracking data into an app that then allows the clinician to have interface, to have monitoring, I, I envision a world, and it's probably not that far off, where I come into my office and I my office looks like a stock trader's office, where I have these big screens up on the wall, and then I see all these graphs of my patients, and I can look and see trends and say, oh my gosh, this person right here hasn't slept well in seven days. I need to reach out to that patient and make sure that they're okay and proactively have a touch point with them before this becomes a major depressive episode. So I think that's the future. I think once again, that allows us to move away from the fee for service model, where we're not seeing people once a problem is already there, but rather continuing to monitor and then be proactive and try and catch things before they become as big of a problem. So it's not far off. I think probably within five or 10 years, we're going to be there. And then the next step will be how is this reimbursed? So my hope is that there's there's some tech company out there that will figure it out because I think there's an immense need for it. So not necessarily critical, but I don't think either of us have really given a uh, negative, not negative side, the opposite uh, side of the coin. Yeah. Now, where where's the break point where people view this as being intrusive? Right. Well, that's the hard thing, right? So in anything, it's not just in healthcare, but in any aspect of life, if you give up privacy, it's going to potentially have upside and downside. So social media is a great example. My goodness, all of the social media companies, the amount of data in your per personal life that they take, this is why you you have a thought, hey, maybe I need a lava lamp, and all of a sudden your Google searches are, are for lava lamps. It's not because <laughs> they're reading your mind, it's not because they're listening in. It's because they are building a profile for you based on all of your internet history, all of your digital footprint, that their predictive levels of what you may be looking for, be interested in, are astounding. So that's the hard thing, right? Is at what point is too much too much? I think I'm of the, I'm hesitant and I'm always somewhat skeptical of these social media companies because I don't necessarily always think that they have good intent because they're selling our information for profit. But the flip side to that is I think everyone can agree that we are unhappy with Facebook because of you know their privacy concerns, but all of us still probably maintain a Facebook, an Instagram, or a WhatsApp on our phone. So we, we complain about it, and we say we don't like it, and yet we continue to use it. And the reason being is that it makes our life so much more convenient. It's interwoven in the fabric of our society at this point. So I, it's hard. Because I think more, less privacy and more data is good for healthcare. But yeah, the trade-off with it is it is 
invasive, it's intrusive. And I don't know whether that's a net good because it does lead to more potential for abuse. The abuse that I could see with something like that is all this metadata sitting out there and somehow insurance companies getting a hold of it and then using it to discriminate on insurability or rates. Mm -hmm. All of a sudden, maybe you're paying a higher insurance rate because Apple Watch says you're not sleeping well. So they think that you're at a higher risk for sleep apnea or, you know, heart attack down the road because of it. And your rates go up before you're even not unhealthy. So yeah, that's, yeah, I think that's what the problem is, is uh, okay. So my, I'm not going to get political here, so don't let the jargon throw you off, but I did have a more conservative mindset previously, and it's gotten a little bit more to the liber liberal side on the healthcare uh, field. So in that, uh, I used to think regulation was always over-regulation. Now, where we see what's happened with Facebook and that there was malfeasance and uh, people, these, these billionaires, they always say you can't become a billionaire without using other people um, or with any, <laughs> maybe even with evil intent. But uh, well, while you're thinking, I'm going to push back on the idea that, that wealthy people only do it on the backs of others, because I think typically people that are wealthy, it's because they're growing or they're creating, you know, Jeff Bezos being the greatest example. So we, Bezos is so often maligned as this evil, uh, you know, oligarch. And yet at the same time, Amazon has made life better for millions and millions and millions of people. I love Amazon. And that's actually an interesting thing. When you look at public perception of Bezos versus public perception of Amazon, Amazon is like one of the most beloved, well-liked companies in the entire world. And the reason being is everyone loves their two-day shipping. Everyone loves unlimited access to retail at their fingertips. Mm -hmm. So I think billionaires very often are people that have grown the pie in terms of the economy, not necessarily people that have somehow figured out a way to just increase their slice of a static economy. So this is why capitalism works, because mm -hmm. the, the amount of wealth that we create continues to expand. And typically profit is not someone taking advantage of another person, but rather profit is created by eliminating inefficiency in the market or creating an entirely new market. Yeah. So it's really regulation. What I was getting down to is I don't think the idea of this technology is a bad idea. However, there needs to be a more robust um regulatory body to control these right even if not just to withdraw the temptation for these people who have the power and money to do completely what agree. we would call evil things agree so no i completely agree and i think the good news the thing that maybe gives me a little bit of comfort with that is the healthcare space already has a much better regulatory environment in terms yeah. of privacy and data than social media wherever don't, everything don't is a free for all it. so with like research how much you have to just yep. go through even just to get a contract Correct. is why right so if you look at what social media has been able to do in terms of invasion of privacy with what they collect that absolutely can't happen in healthcare because healthcare is would give even more access to even more intimate or private parts of people's lives so absolutely that would be the number one concern I'm optimistic that the regulatory environment would be better for that. But yeah, it is hard because 
we've seen with social media that it can go sideways rather quickly. So you got another one for us? We can move I, on. I do. This actually comes off the back of this. Perfect. And so we don't have to spend a lot of time on this one. So we both still have one more we can give. So this is this is going to be based off of my disdain for PBMs. Okay. I think PBMs are stop and explain uh, PBMs real quick in case there's people that don't know. It's a pharmacy benefit manager. When insurance companies first came about, Blue Cross Blue Shield over in California during like the gold rush times, uh these companies would would allow uh an insurance type where they would group their money together. And if somebody got hurt, they'd give their money to that person very much like what the Amish do, but they created a company for this. Well, as these insurance companies developed, this paperwork became a bit too much. And so somebody had the idea to say, Hey, if you give us a cut of the money, I will do all your administrative work. Um, I'll set the formularies. I'll do all your paperwork. All you need to worry about is your contracts uh, and working with the manufacturers. So that's where the pharmacy benefit manager came about. Now they are a middleman. They are a run through. Uh, they skim off the top for paperwork. Now they have, they are probably the most unregulated part of the healthcare system. And they are the reason why the, your drugs cost as much as they do. Um, apart from third world countries ripping off some of our meds. So or actually I should say not third world, first world to sell off to the third world. So PBMs, um, I hate them. I wish they would go away or I wish I could be a part of them to help change it. Uh, but that's where Amazon comes in. I believe that we could completely get rid of PBMs. I don't think that they are necessary. I think that if we were able to get someone like an, a Jeff Bezos to work with each manufacturer, major manufacturer, we could have the manufacturers themselves um, bottle up medications and ship directly to patients' homes through Amazon. And so we we get rid of a lot of unnecessary pharmacy work. We get rid of the PBM who's skimming off the top. Your drugs will be cheaper. The drug development process will be cheaper. Healthcare will become cheaper altogether if we got rid of the PBMs. And because our shipping costs have have gone down significantly because we've become uh, more uh, streamlined, this is the time where we can actually leverage that those shipping changes and bring it right to your door instead of having you have to stand in line at a pharmacy for your maintenance medications. This w- this won't work for emergent medications. We would still have to have some sort of small pharmacy or kiosk to help with those items. And I think a lot of people do want that face-to-face with the drug expert, but for your maintenance meds, a lot of people come up, they just want to pick up their med and go. They don't want to talk to anybody because they've been taking it for 10 years. Yeah. And it seems to be the direction that it's going. Unfortunately though, so for people that don't know, Express Scripts is a PBM. Um, a lot of these mail orders are just directly the PBM. So that markup is still there. So CVS Caremark. Yeah. Caremark. Thank you. Yes. They are the worst, but Mark Cuban has the, what is it? The cost plus meds or whatever his company's Mm -hmm. name is. And that's very similar. So I do agree. There seems to be an incredible amount of disruption. I read a study that PBMs are estimated to add about 30% of cost to drugs overall. So this is a huge component of drug cost and pharmaceuticals, is one of the driving costs or driving leaders of 
increase healthcare costs. We often mm-hmm. complain about, you know, medical doctors making too much or that healthcare providers or nurses are making too much, but uh, employee cost is actually not a huge, huge part of it. It's a tiny sliver of overall healthcare costs. So this is a big I do part wanna, of it. I want to put this in here because it is very important for people who do not understand pharmacy. There are many times that your prescription is filled and it costs the pharmacy money mm. to fill that mm-hmm. for you. We make no margin. We make negative. We're in the red for a lot of our medications. And the reason why we make profit is off of the brand medications or these insulin products, these things that cost a lot of money, these biologics, because the margin may be small, but on a large cost, it actually helps. But the PBMs will contract this price where you will pay, I will have to pay to fill your medication. And you may have a copay and you may be like, oh no, I still pay a copay. But yeah, that's still it just makes it a little less red for us. That's it. Yeah. Filed. So I've got one more for you. And then I think from a okay. time standpoint, we'll finish. So if, if you're okay. not offended by me doing three while you do two, then, then I'll fine. do my third. So I'm actually going to go outside of healthcare. I said earlier that I was going to stick with healthcare, but this one I'm going to give because it's kind of my fun daydream. This is what I'm thinking about right now. So we've talked many, many times over, John, you and I are really into coffee. So one of my dreams is like in retirement, because I don't think this is really a money making scheme, but in retirement is to start my own coffee shop. And it's interesting because my seven year old right now is getting really into making espresso and he does a pretty good job. So I told him, I said, when you turn 16, if you want to start a business, we'll we'll buy a coffee cart together. I'll be your investor. And he's all excited by the idea of having like a trailer and then, you know, taking it to the park in the summers and setting up and making coffee. But I love the idea of having a coffee shop, having it be that that center of community, that third place, because I, I think, once again, tying in my mental health ideology, I really love that idea. And the way that I would do it is it would be a coffee shop, obviously, but then I'd also have meeting space in the back. And then at night, have it available for private events, you know, dinners, meetings, things like that, have the ability to do dinner Um, dinner events there, even if we don't have a dinner menu, because we would have a full kitchen. So you have the ability to have private event space, but then also do catering outside of the coffee shop. So coffee shops themselves are pretty low margin. Uh, Even though coffee itself is very cheap, labor is not. And if you're only making, you know, two bucks of profit per cup that you sell, you have to sell a heck of a lot of coffee just to break even or pay the bills. So from the research I've done, because of course I've researched this, you know, a good coffee shop, you're maybe as an owner hoping to profit like 80 to 100 grand, which sounds great. But as the owner, if you're spending 60 to 70 hours ordering supplies, scrubbing toilets, doing all the work that kind of falls in between that is not being done by the barista that you hired, but still has to be done because you got to keep the lights on. That's not a great return on investment. So this would not be a get rich quick scheme. This would be a, a passion project in retirement, like I said, or maybe, you know, once I'm independently wealthy, but I love the idea of it. I also love the idea of doing it and then having it be a place where I can like employ my kids or employ my grandkids or have it just mm-hmm. be a place of, uh, you know, giving ki- people opportunities and not necessarily having the project be profit centered. But I think the key with it is catering. And then also having private event space because those are higher margin activities. If you are doing, you know, catered breakfast, catered lunch for offices, for corporate events, things like that. Those are areas where you can actually make some serious money. So the coffee shop itself would be the front. 
that would be the the area that is community focused that is that third place that's you know maybe a break even venture just to to be a community service or give something positive back to the community and then hopefully the area where you would actually be profitable on the business would be the catering the meeting space all of that well i i will say that carolyn's been making those cakes and they are really Wonderful. So if we can convince you to move back to, but I'm serious about yeah. this at some point. So if Carolyn wanted to be our chef, we might have to talk about this here. Well, I, I, I'm very, um, I was very clear with her and she is with me that we, she really would want to do that. It's just, she doesn't like to like market herself and doesn't like the social media stuff. But I said, listen, all you need to do is find a kitchen mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. you, even for a time being have them pay for just the cost of the supplies and ingredients and they can take the coffee shop owner can take almost all the margin. And then that just gets your that's marketing by itself yep. just for a little bit, but you need to catch. It's just, we've thought about that too. Well, if, if you um, move back to Buffalo, there's a, a boba shop that might actually have fit that. So anyways, the same. <laughs> all right, well, let's move to personal items because this is evolving into a, a conversation about us starting a business, which sure. our wives might get upset with. Yeah, we don't need another yeah, one. Yeah, we've probably got enough on our plates. So do you want to start? Do you have any personal items? Um, why don't you go first if you have an idea? Do you have an idea of what you, you're thinking? Yeah, I can talk about something. Yeah. Okay. So later this month, I'm actually doing a fun little thing. I'm a big fan of workations where if you're having, you know, some sort of work event that's out of town, trying to leverage that. You know, maybe you stay an extra day or you do something fun while you're there just to, to have a little bit of a mix of business and pleasure. So at the end of the month, I'm going to Albany, New York to present at the New York State um, Mental Health NAMI, so National Association of Mental Health or whatever it is, um, conference and really cool nonprofit. I'm really happy to be involved with them, but they are not paying me because it's a nonprofit and I'm happy to present, but they said, we'll pay for your train ticket and we'll pay for your hotel. And so immediately when I heard, oh, train, my kids are obsessed with trains. They love it. So this is becoming a little bit of a workation. I'm going to pull my kids out of school Friday. We're going to take the train from Buffalo to Albany because my train ticket is paid for and the kids are half fare. So for like 120 bucks, all three of us are going to ride the train. It's a five hour ride from Buffalo to Albany. The two kids I'm going to take with me are old enough to hang out in the hotel while I give my presentation. Then we'll go out. We'll have a nice dinner. We'll we'll do, find something fun to do that, you know, young boys will enjoy. And then we'll hop on the train and come back home. So it'll be a, a fun little weekend. The boys are super excited about riding a train and a nice opportunity to to get some good quality time with the kids and and do something that's hopefully memorable for them. Well, I guess the segue is perfect because this is something I've been thinking about. Uh, My wife, uh, Carolyn, is going to be going to Germany in May. That's the plan. Ah. Uh, Yeah, she's going to go with some cousins. They're going to go visit uh, the old country where the grandparents came from. Is she going to visit Uncle Heine? Yeah, Excellent. that's great. Yeah. People are, it, that's, that's the real name, everybody. So mm-hmm. Uncle Heine. Uh, and yeah, go to like Munich. And I think they're going to try to go. The family was from hung, Hungary. They're German Hungarians. So they're going to go over there too. But uh, I wanted to surprise my wife. We had, I had taken time off a long time ago. I totally forgot about it around Thanksgiving time. And we were going to go to Punta Cana because that's one of our favorite places to go. 
well, it's just not happening this year. So I said, okay, maybe I'll surprise her and bring her to the city because New York City, uh, because we went last year. We loved it. She had never been. And then she says, you know what, John, why don't you go by yourself and you can go stay with a friend. You can just go. So this wonderful woman suggested that I go and hang out with my friends in New York City for a few days. And I pushed back a bit and she's like, no, you really should do it. And I couldn't, I couldn't have been happier with that. So, <laughs> so I'm going to go to New York City uh, by myself. I love walking around and just exploring. So even if I was by myself, as long as I don't get stabbed in an alley I shouldn't be in, uh, I will be walking the streets uh, of New York City, getting coffee where I can, going through Central Park. I, I had such a good time last time. I, I love being alone and walking. So Cool. I, I'm I'm just a geriatric man. You should take the train. We'll just pick you. Actually, we'll pick you up I, on our way. Yeah, we'll pick you I'm up on our way. We'll train. wave as we go by you. Perfect. Awesome. Well, thank you, everyone. This is White Coats of the Round Table. If you like what you hear, consider subscribing. I don't know what happened there. If you don't like what you hear, definitely don't subscribe. Until next week, this is Mike and John. Thank you, everyone.